Hello and welcome to Damn Interesting Week, the podcast brought to you by damninteresting.com. If it's interesting, we're going to talk about it today. So without further ado, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Um, I found this really great article from the curated links from BBC Travel called Turkey's Unique Hand Sanitizing Method. It's by Jenna Scatena. What do you know about kind of the history of cologne? I None. I'm not a giant fan <laughs> of it. I know that. I, I, I don't <laughs> mind like if a man smells like something, but I prefer like the subtler like deodorant smell. I'm not into like a smell mm-hmm. smell. An overpowering kind of scent. That's fair. And what's interesting, too, is how cologne does typically have sort of a masculine association, like cologne for men, perfume for women, which is maybe another damn interesting article that we come across later on. But this in particular starts to look at how people in Turkey are turning to a traditional aromatic fragrance that has become super relevant during the pandemic, which is colonia. So it's like the word cologne, except it's spelled K-O-L-O-N-Y-A, and it means cologne. But it's been a symbol of Turkish hospitality and health since the Ottoman Empire, and it's often described as Turkey's national scent. So it's usually made with fig blossoms, jasmine, rose, or citrus ingredients. And culturally, it tends to be sprinkled on guests' hands as they enter homes, as they go into hotels and hospitals, whenever they finish meals at restaurants, and even when they gather for religious services. What makes this really interesting and unique is that beyond just kind of being a cultural effort and gesture of hospitality, it's made with ethanol. And so because it has such a high alcohol content, it can kill more than 80% of germs and basically also acts as an effective hand disinfectant. So it's like Purell that smells nice, basically. (laughs) Yeah, or it happens to be smell-good hospitality that has the added benefit of battling this virus. (laughs) Well, right. It's already built into the culture. Like anywhere you go, of course you get this sprinkled on your hands. You almost suspect that it became a tradition. Like I'm sure it's one of those things like we've been doing it for hundreds of years. We don't really know why we do it. We just do it. I mean, the whole uh, shellfish isn't kosher. Well, one of the reasons shellfish wasn't kosher way back then was because it spoiled and gave you parasites and it was bad for you. People would frequently get sick eating shellfish. So they came up with their own explanation for it. But fundamentally, they were like, don't eat shellfish because... And so this idea of like, you should use this thing that is effectively a sanitizer on your hands. I wonder if it had these origins of like, Mm -hmm. this thing is blessing you and keeping your family healthy. And you don't necessarily know why, but it's just because, oh, well, this is what we do. Yeah. And especially in the Islamic tradition, the ritual of hand washing is something that has been sort of a religious custom uh, within the culture for a really long time that does sort of speak to the shellfish inclusion or clause in religious texts for along the same reasons. Yeah. That's really fantastic. I w- See, I want to smell it now. Like, I want to know if I would like it or if I would be like, oh. I'm also trying well, to imagine, like, it's the national smell of Turkey. What is the national smell of America? Like, if we oh, had a scent, it would be like pork rinds, I-, I imagine. It would be hot dog water, I'm pretty sure. Oh, there you go. I don't, I, that doesn't sound sanitary, but I bet. <laughs> well, you know, that would kind of be the American way, right? Freedom right. to smell however we want. <laughs> and I mean, the roots of all of this started with really rose water was kind of like the OG here. So back in the ninth century, all across the Arabian Peninsula, people would use rose water for aromatic, culinary, beauty, religious, and medicinal purposes. And Persians, Egyptians, and Ottomans were using it to cleanse themselves and welcome guests. 
But then eau de Cologne in the 19th century started to make its way along trade routes from Cologne, Germany, obviously where the word Cologne kind of starts from, to the Ottoman Empire. And so when a sultan first encountered it, he started adapting it by blending the tradition of rose water with some alcohol-based fragrances that they were getting from Germany. And that's kind of how they created Cologne. According to one of the doctors that was interviewed for this article, he said, having Cologne in your home became as common as having food in the fridge. Usually people keep a bottle in the bedroom, the bathroom, and the living room, so it's never out of reach. And it's an essential tool to teach hospitality at an early age. When I was a child, it was my duty to greet the guests and make sure they had their three customary Turkish things. Colonia, candy, and cigarettes. Huh. <laughs> I like the idea. Like, I think you see a lot of pushback here where it's like, oh, we're going to sanitize everybody's hands. And it's like, oh, well, that's an implication that I'm dirty. I'm, I'm inherently right. a little offended by that. Whereas <laughs> if you've already built it in of like, no, we're being kind to you by offering yes. this thing. Culturally, yes. that's that's the biggest hurdle right there is getting people to actually do it. Absolutely. I mean, we're kind of adopting a little bit of a Turkish custom. Uh, I would just like to experience the fragrant uniqueness. Like if we had maybe like a blue bonnet scented one or evening primrose. There evening primrose would be lovely and super regional. Right? Absolutely. I have to say, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad when you first said the headline of this article, my brain immediately thought you were talking about Turkey the food. And I was imagining like, <laughs> you just rub a, rub a, you know, good basted turkey on your hands and somehow that makes them sanitary. And I was really curious where that was going. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but you know, further studies may be warranted. That's right. That's practically hot dog water right there. Like we should, we should combine <laughs> Next link. Next link. Uh, we're going to stay right in the kitchen here with this one. We got an article from Kevin Pang at menshealth.com, which is not one of our normal sites to draw from. But you know what? <laughs> I, where the interesting things are, that's where we go. This is a, right. a history of the George Foreman grill. Ooh! did you have one of those? Oh, I think everybody did. I'm sure I had one and then I lost one of those kind of like plastic fork scraper cleaner things and it became kind of a pain to clean up. Mm -hmm. It has all these kind of different moving pieces and it's hard to keep track of, but I I've had at least one, possibly even two. I feel like I never had one, but I was always dating someone who did. Like they, <laughs> they were always sort of in my periphery. It's like jumper cables. Like you never need them. You need them for somebody else. So yep, that was yep. my experience with them. But this is, you know, it's actually a very fascinating product history. It was not, of course, invented by George Foreman at all. He was a spokesman. It was invented in 1993 by a pair named Michael Bohm and Robert Johnson of Illinois. But they initially called it the short order grill. And it was meant mm. for tacos or fajitas because the idea was that it was angled and you could then scrape the cooked meat down the slope into the waiting tortilla. Oh. And that was they, they hadn't really thought about the fat draining aspect at all. They were really going with the like, no, it's easy to load your tortilla up. It's a transfer mechanism. Exactly. But the CEO of Salton Kitchen Appliance Company, Leon Dreeman or Dryman, he bought the design from them. And he was the one who named it the lean, mean, fat reducing grilling machine, which he mm. did because the mean machine was the name of Burt Reynolds football team in 1974's The Longest Yard. <laughs> Uh, which I have not seen, 70s movies and football movies both being not really my thing. But <laughs> but he was also the same guy, this Leon Dryman of uh, Salton. He was sort of the uh, proprietor of the Juice Man Juice Extractor and the Ron Perkeel uh, Pasta yes. Maker. This was sort mm -hmm. of his sweet spot was these gadgets for the kitchen that he would make infomercials about. That was his business model. Mm -hmm. 
And just like the juice extractor and the pasta maker, he initially used kind of a spunky older white guy as the spokesman, right? Sitting there in the kitchen with the apron, getting the audience mm-hmm. all riled up. Look at it, ch- mm-hmm. you know, it slices, it dices. And for whatever reason, that just wasn't working with the George Foreman grill. So somebody else in his orbit suggested getting in touch with George Foreman. And George Foreman's like, yeah, I kind of like this. I'd be willing to be a spokesman. But he demanded 45% of all the profits. He invested nothing. Wow. And he just said, you are going to pay out the nose for my name. At the time, it was an unheard of deal. Yeah. It almost makes you suspect that maybe he was like, I don't really want to do this. So I'm just going to like put a, a screw you offer in to basically get the guy. to right. yeah. But Dryman yeah. agreed to it. And they initially pitched it with George Foreman as like a big tough guy. They put a bunch of, uh-huh. of his boxing footage in and it was like, this is what a man eats with. And it uh-huh. sat on the market for 18 months with minimal sales. Like nobody was buying yeah. it. They were basically about to ditch it. And they, at the last second, they decided to do a new infomercial, pitching it as an at-home dad thing. They got George Mm. cooking at home with his kids. And what Dryman says was, on a Tuesday, I flew a film crew to George's house. It was on air by the following weekend. On Monday, all hell broke loose. (laughs) And the orders just flew in. Somehow, seeing George Foreman as a dad just really, like, struck a nerve with people, I guess. Well, I mean, it's a more accessible demographic than, like, super burly, macho. Right. No blah, one, blah, no blah. one's going to buy that. No one says, like, oh, yeah, I, this is a macho man's grill. Like, a macho man grill is, like, the big grill on the on the patio, Exactly. Right? It's not a tabletop, counter-friendly kitchen appliance. No, yeah. that's, that's for dads. What a smart pivot. Yeah, and it, and it worked. By 1999, they were raking in $160 million in sales per year. And based on all of that, they don't know exactly how much Foreman got, but they can estimate Foreman's profits were second only to Michael Jordan's contract with Nike. So other than that, it was the biggest spokesman deal in the history of the world. He obviously did pretty well. They eventually released over 90 different versions, which I I feel like I've only seen one version, so I don't know. I know I've seen versions that are different sizes, Mm. right? Like something that's a bit more petite for like, you know, one chicken breast and then something that can do maybe several at a time, but 90 iterations? Yeah. Yeah, they had 90 different versions. And even today, they are still selling about 3 million units per year. So well, it's uh, you can it's, find one at pretty much any Goodwill. That's really impressive. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the thing though is they they've got all the used ones, but then they've got new ones as well. Like you could probably go to Bed Bath and Beyond and get one. I imagine. I don't know. But wow. But yeah, they're still selling them. And of course, the biggest demographic was college kids. They said, you know, there mm-hmm. was this aspect of the busy dad cooking for his kids, but largely it was college kids in dorm rooms who didn't have a stovetop at all. And this was a way for them to kind of get a little bit of cooking in there and feel like I'm eating meat, even though I'm stuck Mm -hmm. in my little dorm room with my mini fridge and raw cookie dough. (laughs) Note to marketers. That's right. Put your big boxer as a a lovable dad character and everybody will go crazy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next link. Next link. Uh, This next one comes from Massive Science by Chiago Arzua. It's called A New Machine Can Translate Brain Activity directly into written sentences. Ooh. So like you're you're thinking thoughts and it's writing down what you thought. That's exactly right. So basically, this is kind of piggybacking on the premise of brain machine interfaces or BMIs. And these are things that kind of basically allow your thoughts to kind of manifest in certain things. So right now using BMIs, people can do things like move machines or control virtual avatars. I also suspect that this works for people who have extreme mobility challenges, and they can kind of look at a keyboard and kind of imagine the letter they want to select, which then can build out speech a letter at a time. 
time, which is Mm -hmm. slow, but still effective and kind of amazing because what BMIs do is they access a region of the brain responsible for a specific movement and then decode that electrical signal into something a computer can understand. But speech has been particularly difficult. Right up until this recent study and this recent test, usually they've been able to kind of work on individual sounds like a vowel sound or a consonant sound. But getting into words has been a challenge, let alone full sentences worth of brain activity into an actual written sentence. And so what's happened is they've used recent advances. These neuroscientists have basically used a type of algorithm that deciphers and translates one computer language into another, which is the basis for a lot of human language translation software. And part of that is because of a shift of focus. So they used four participants who already had brain implants for treating seizures. What these participants did is trained the computer algorithm by reading sentences out loud for about 30 minutes So it can then create a representation of what regions of the brain are being activated that all comprises kind of the encoder part of the BMI. Then it's followed by a different AI that can understand that computer-generated representation and translate that into text, which is the decoder. So the encoder-decoder duo is basically doing for speech what other BMIs do for movement. That's fantastic. So I wonder if it's limited to, like you read words for 30 minutes, is it able to figure out words that you didn't read in those 30 minutes? Like, is it limited to a certain vocabulary or is it able to say, no, I know what these syllables are. And then the decoder is able to say, ah, that matches my dictionary. I'm going to just say it was this word. That's a good question. I I suspect, obviously, you know, we'd want to train this algorithm with the full scope of the English language. But for this study, the authors constrained the available vocabulary to only about 250 words. So it's a small sample size, a small set of vocabulary. So it's not going to cover like you can't think all of the complete works of Shakespeare, old English and like pump out a really nice tome. But this is definitely improvement for, you know, the person using a virtual cursor with their mind and trying to type into that virtual cursor keyboard one digit at a time. Oh, absolutely. And I'm particularly impressed by the fact that 30 minutes of reading is enough to effectively train it. I mean, you would think if somebody's, you know, really looking to have this thing change their life, I'm sure they'd be willing to read a lot more. So I can imagine that you could definitely, like you said, over time, you could train your particular AI to be so finely tuned to what you were doing that it seems like they've got a lot of potential for the future. Oh, absolutely. They're looking to expand the study to different languages, of course. But that would also teach us about how speech and its representations in the brain could possibly vary across languages. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to my husband, who is dyslexic, he was really interested in what this might do if we were to use these brain implants in people who have dyslexia, because it's really well known that people who are dyslexic do not really think in text, but they think in visual sensory input. Right. And so to kind of see how those thoughts and the different regions of the brain and the order that those thoughts are taking place in could foster a lot more kind of cross collaboration or understanding about how different brains work. Yeah. Well, and of course, me being the the experimenter that I am, the first thing I would want to do is like take an AI that was trained on one person and put it on another person and see like, is it just absolute gibberish? Or is there some <laughs> overlap of like, oh, this person thinks in this way. And here's this other subset of people who also think in this way as yeah. you know, like, how could you categorize the different styles of thinking about language? Because like you said, I, yeah. I do believe it is very, very different. I tend to think not in pictures at all. I'm a very, very word-oriented person. Me too. And Mm -hmm. so it it is fascinating, I think, to think about how someone might interpret language completely differently in their brain and yet still come out with communication, which is absolutely pretty important. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we're making progress, bits and bits. Well, that's really good. I'm I'm feeling hopeful. (laughs) 
<laughs> Yay! Next link. Next link. There's another one from Massive Psy, as it happens. This one is called While You Sleep, Specialized Neurons in Your Brain Help You Forget. So this is really interesting because generally we have thought about forgetting as a passive loss kind of thing. You know, it's like, oops, that yeah. fell through the cracks. We just didn't manage to get it. But it turns out, actually, mm -hmm. forgetting is an active part of your brain's function. It is deliberately <gasps> forgetting things. The, the way they showed this was with mice, of course. That's how they do all of their mm -hmm. experimentation. The hypothalamus is this pea-sized brain structure that generates hormones. And right next to the hypothalamus is this kind of cluster of neurons. It seemed like it doesn't really have a name, but the neurons make MCH, which is melanin-concentrating hormone. But MCH, as it turns out, doesn't just affect melanin. It affects appetite and a number of other functions. And a team of U.S. and Japanese researchers have confirmed that MCH neurons also send blocking signals to the hippocampus, which is what regulates memory. And mm -hmm. even once they started to suspect that this was sort of an active process, it in fact turned out to be backwards from what they thought because the idea was when you're sleeping, you have REM sleep and non-REM sleep. And it's mm -hmm. in fact during the REM sleep that your brain becomes more active, overriding and choosing to forget things. So it's almost like sleep as the great hard drive disk defragger. Right. We're basically sorting, reorganizing, getting rid of what it thinks or identifies as stray, extraneous, broken, whatever. Yeah. And they were able to demonstrate it. The way they can do it is they can genetically modify the mice so that neurons can be activated or turned off with lasers outside the mouse's body. So they basically Whoa. shoot a laser at the mouse's head and the brain starts doing different stuff inside their skull. And so they created mice with and without MCH neurons. They created some that could be thrown into overdrive with this laser. And the cool thing huh. about this is it has implications for a number of different diseases. There's implications for Alzheimer's, which is effectively mm -hmm. forgetting too much. So you could perhaps mm -hmm. suppress the MCH and retain more memory. But it also has implications for PTSD, which is largely a disease uh -huh. of not forgetting enough. You know, you yeah. can't let go of these things. And possibly mm -hmm. if you activated a little extra MCH, you could sort of process and get rid of that. And it possibly, they're, huh. they're a little less convinced on this one. They say possibly it even has implications for depression because part of depression is this idea that nothing seems novel or interesting anymore. Mm. The thing you have to be careful of, of course, is if you're doing this experiment and you accidentally stimulate their MCH neurons a little too much, they wake up and they have complete amnesia. You know, you want to be very careful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll definitely want to get some refinements done before human testing and opening up our different sunshine of the eternal spotless mind clinics. Right, right. right. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I think it's, it's a nice philosophical thing to realize forgetting is good for us. You know, I yeah. think we tend to hyper focus on this, like, I have to remember everything. I have to be brilliant. I have to be so smart about knowing all this knowledge. When, in fact, from an emotional health standpoint, forgetting stuff is kind of important sometimes. It's healthy. Yeah. yeah. Especially as we're able to kind of like outsource some of these kind of low stakes memory type things. I mean, I'm already doing that so much with Google, right? Like, right? I know that I don't have to memorize tax tables or anything like that because I can pull up the most recent ones from a reputable source and get that information so it's not taking up that space in my brain. Well, and there are some people who have made sort of a unproven connection between the fact that we are using so many screens and so many, you know, memory assistant mm. devices that our brains are remembering stuff because they have so much time on their hands. They're basically like, well, I don't need to remember any facts anymore, so I'm just going to hold on to these emotional things even tighter. 
Oh, yeah, that, that can't be healthy. No, probably not. <laughs> but just bust out the lasers and soon we'll uh, we'll have it all fixed. Government-mandated raves, That's like right. twice a year. It's just, we, ever, we all have to go to our different Burning Man regional event and get the lasers in your brains and you'll come out feeling a lot better. I mean, it's already kind of working that way. Yeah, that's not dystopian at all. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next link. We mean well. That's right. <laughs> next link. link. Uh, this this lighthearted schadenfreude article comes from The Guardian. Harking from France, the title is Man Accidentally Ejects Himself from fighter jet during surprise flight. What? There was nothing about that that like I had was compelled to read this just because the headline alone was so much. So basically, there was a 64-year-old defense company executive who was on a surprise outing in a fighter jet and it unnerved him so much he basically accidentally ejected himself at over 320 miles per hour. Was he a passenger um, or he was the pilot? Uh, he was a passenger, but it's a fighter jet. So, so it's both kind of people. like that two-seater. Right. Um, <laughs> this is so schadenfreude. I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> he, uh, The force of the takeoff basically made him float off of his seat because, you know, G-force is, sure. is a real thing. And if you're not trained for this, it can be unnerving to say the least. So when he started floating off of his seat, he stood up and involuntarily grabbed the ejection handle to steady himself. Oh, so he just so, grabbed the nearest <laughs> thing and it happened to be. The nearest thing was a get me out of here <laughs> handle. Absolutely. So, I mean, there were obviously, you know, a series of errors that air accident investigators found in the lead up to the incident. So there were ignored medical warnings that the passengers should not undergo the 3.7 G of force generated by the takeoff. Uh, there were loose seat straps that allowed him to float off. He also lost his helmet while oh, being ejected. But he Even lived. More, he, <laughs> he lived, yeah. Um, he, he'd also never expressed any desire to fly in a fighter jet, nor did he have any previous military aviation experience. So, so, so who thought this was <laughs> going to be a good surprise for him? Like you blindfold well, him and you're like, climb on in, we'll let you know what happens in a minute? You know, he's a defense contractor. The flight right. had been a gift from colleagues and the guy felt he couldn't refuse. They were like, hey, we're going to give you a once in a lifetime opportunity to actually be in these fighter jets that we're trading and selling as defense contractors. You, you got to experience it. You know, luckily he had a parachute that deployed and he had a relatively soft landing in a nearby field. So he was <laughs> able to avoid serious injury, went to the hospital and the pilot was not automatically ejected too because of a malfunction. Oh, so <laughs> even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They may want to take a look at some of the stuff that they're selling and trading in if this was the experience they had firsthand. But at least the pilot was also able to land the plane on the runway despite the involuntary departure of his passenger and the loss of the cockpit canopy. Investigations are still ongoing, but... Yeah, I feel like someone's going to get fired over a number of the issues there. <laughs> that just seems like... Oh, yeah. I mean, there are definitely safer ways to do quality control testing. That's true. I mean, at least they, they know, well, they know his seat works. Now they know that the pilot ejection seat doesn't work. So I guess, you know, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> a negative result is still a result. They, uh, they got data that's useful. That's right. That's right. And it's going to be even better next time when they have trained, qualified people who actually want to be in the dang thing going. For a flight. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's uh, he's not gonna participate in any more surprise plane flights. Good time for him to get on, you know, better health and get some teletherapy to kind of work this through. <laughs> I wish him the very best. That's right. We'll shoot some lasers at his brain and he can forget the whole experience. <laughs> Bring it around. Very nice. That's right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This is one of those things that takes something that we take pretty much for granted of the scientific community and show how much we really don't know. 
You know, we've, we've had these <laughs> we have these narratives that we've established for a lot of history that wasn't recorded. But in fact, it's based on really scant evidence. And all of a sudden we find mm-hmm. a new piece of evidence and everything is changed. So this is about the migration of humans out of Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago. And where do we think Mm -hmm. people first emerged? And when did we become Homo sapiens versus other types of hominins? And the established narrative has always been we came out of Africa about 120,000 years ago. We went along the Mm -hmm. Mediterranean coast into the Levant region, which is this sort of Israel, Mm -hmm. Jordan and Lebanon, you know, cradle of civilization kind of area. Cradle of civilization. Right. Mm -hmm. And then only much later, about 50,000 years ago, did further migration take humans into Asia. And the title of this article is Will Asia Rewrite Human History? Because as it turns out, people were in Asia tens and possibly hundreds of thousands of years before we thought. And Mm. they, in fact, have also shown that we probably left Africa quite a bit earlier as well. So now they're thinking Mm. that we left Africa some 200,000 years ago in multiple directions, went straight to Asia, also went to the Levant and lots of other areas. But it's completely changed the timeline and the map of what we thought. So and this is all in really, really recent times. So, for example, in 2016, a team found a finger bone in the Nefu Desert in the Arabian Peninsula was 86,000 years old. So right there, they're like, oh, we're 36,000 years earlier than we thought we were supposed to be. In 2015, they found 47 teeth in a cave in the Hunan province in China that were anywhere from 85,000 to 120,000 years old. What? And in 2018, a team found a bunch of tools in India that were at least 170,000 years old. Wow. So on the one hand, it's like, OK, well, cool. We're constantly adding to our knowledge and we're changing. You know, as soon as we get new data, we change our models. But that's science. You know, there's an important question here of why has Asia been ignored for so long? It's been there. It's not like we couldn't have dug it up earlier. Why is it that we're only just now going like, oh, hey, maybe we should look over there and see <laughs> what there is to see? Uh, And so the article goes into a lot of that. There's a couple of major reasons. Number one, the Bible is kind of a little bit of a, a, you know, confounding thing where people like the Bible and they like the Greek classics and those tend to draw a lot of interest into those areas of the world. Right. And then there's a self-perpetuating cycle where the funding follows the discovery. So once you make a discovery in an area, people want to focus more on that area. They don't want to fund some Mm. trip out to nowhere when you just don't know what you're going to find. And then (sighs) a really critical one is that Culturally, archaeology tends to be a Western discipline, whereas Eastern disciplines tend to focus more on actual records of human tradition and narrative history. So you have Asian countries that generally have a lot more written history than Western Europe does. Mm. We've got written stuff from China going back thousands of years where like we can barely manage to keep stuff from a thousand years ago in Western Europe. But Mm -hmm. it also means that most text scientists are Asian and most archaeologists are white. And so because the archaeologists are white, they go digging in their own homelands, right? Right. And then the fourth major one, obviously, is a little more modern, basically political situations in the current layout of the land, like war in the Middle East or China being generally unwelcoming to any kind of foreigners just digging into their land. That kind of has been a bit of a barrier where even if people did want to go in there, they had a hard time getting actually to where they wanted to go. Sure, yeah. And so each of these is sort of easing in its own way over time to the point that we're now at this kind of perfect storm of possibility where they're saying, hey, we can go dig here. And oh, my God, look what we're finding. Right. One really interesting thing was they were careful to note that all of these pockets of pre-civilization that they're finding, they are nonetheless not our ancestors. What? Yeah, because DNA analysis, now that they have all the 23andMe's and they've been able to do like some really big population-wide DNA analysis... They've shown conclusively in a number of studies 
that all modern Eurasians, basically all of Europe and Asia, diverged from the DNA of Africa at a particular window between 60 and 80,000 years ago. So basically, migration is not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing going on. And these earlier groups that came out 200,000 years ago, they sort of died off for whatever reason. They were humans, but their colonies and their tribes didn't survive. Whereas the Mm. ones that happened to come out between 60 and 80,000 years ago managed to stay and flourish. So it's, you know, it's a really fascinating look. And they say as well that this counts both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. There's actually quite a bit of the population today that has Neanderthal DNA. I've heard that before. Yes. So there was definitely some some crossbreeding. There was definitely a lot of stuff going on. They say, you know, there's a temptation to imagine a migration is like they bought a ticket and they hopped over to Asia. But realistically, (laughs) you're talking about a colony or a tribe or a group of people who would move maybe 10 kilometers in a generation. You know, so it's this slow just sort of spread of people and some of them don't make it. And then maybe there's a big climate catastrophe and a whole lot of them don't make it. And they just have to kind of Mm -hmm. go back to the source and have people keep on moving outward. Oh, that's fascinating to think that there could be so many more discoveries to be made in Asia for that. Yeah. And that's what they're saying is basically it's this huge, huge opportunity right now where it's never really been looked at before. And now we have so many better tools than we've had in the past. We're able to jump right right into this, scope the whole thing out with, I don't know what you'd call it, like an MRI for the ground, basically. (laughs) You can Mm -hmm. look really deep. And so you don't have to dig like they did in the past where you have to really just dig and see what you find. Now they can sort of pick these hotspots and immediately start Mm. finding really cool stuff. Right. It's almost kind of like ground sonar where you're able to kind of like use different sort of sound waves to keep things intact, but be able to image and map them without disturbing and destroying it all. Right. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why China is being a little more open than they have been in the past is you're not causing environmental havoc. You don't have these people crawling all over the land and digging everything up. They're like, no, we just want to come in, take a quick look. And if there's something, then, you know, we'll dig it up. But otherwise, we'll leave you alone. And it seems like it's it's a confluence of technology and culture that's working out pretty well. How cool. Yeah. I'm sure there are so many different organizations and schools of thought that are just thrilled at the idea of upending our narrative of human history. It it, (laughs) it needs a little upending. It's due for it, I think. Super fair. (laughs) Super fair. Yep. Yep. Next link. Next link. This comes from The Age, which is an Australian publication by Stuart Late called Tarantula Venom Could Produce Addiction-Free Painkillers. Ooh, we have a pet tarantula in our house, actually. So That is very brave of well, you. Well, it, it's my stepson's, but it lives in a tank and it doesn't come out and that's fine. I'm... <laughs> oh, I, I will never forget the, the scenes from Home Alone, which forever cemented spiders <gasps> oh, as not really the pet for me. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, so, but they, I, I was under the impression they basically don't bite people, but they do have venom. They do. Yeah. So they have um, specifically, they were looking at how different protein molecules called peptides in the venom of the Chinese bird eating spider. Oh. And they were looking at, <laughs> yeah, what a what colorful name. Again, you are very brave. Um, and, but they're looking at how these peptides in the venom bind to pain receptors in the human body. There was the University of Queensland's Institute for Molecular Bioscience, Dr. Christina Schrader, said they've discovered in mouse models, all hail the mighty mouse, that they're able to tweak mini proteins to get it to bind to pain receptors in a specific way. Because we know that the venom targets specific ion channels in our bodies, but they hadn't understood until now how they interact with the membranes on the cell surfaces. And so by making modifications to these proteins, they're able to modify how they bind to certain receptors. And so right now there are about nine different receptors that the mini proteins bind to, including the heart, the brain, and much of the focus of the research has been ensuring that they bind to the right receptors in the right amount. 
wants because they don't want to make something that can stop your heart right. or paralyze you. And what's great about this is that unlike opioids, this is not an addictive thing. You don't start to like, oh, I got to get some more of that rantula venom. You know, it's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm fiending for a spider bite. No, no. And part of the reason I think that in Australia, they're doing a lot of this research is that, you know, morphine, fentanyl and oxycodone mm -hmm. have always been restricted. And in recent years, the government's also moved to remove products containing codeine from shelves. Mm -hmm. So they're really looking to kind of restrict access on a lot of these. But because these mini proteins don't have the same addictive properties... Um, and also with opioids, your body naturally reduces the number of receptors once you take them. So that's how you have to start taking more and more to become effective, mm -hmm. which builds up a tolerance and, and, you know, really creates a spiral of addiction that's really unhelpful. And with the ion channels, with the venom, they don't downregulate in the same way. So the idea is we'll have something that can have an effect on pain, but won't cause addiction. Any potential therapy is obviously still a number of years away, and they've got to do more animal trials before moving on to human trials. But, you know, it's promising and, and a good donation of the spiders, I suppose. Well, that's an, it's an interesting mechanism because the way you're describing it, it's basically targeting the place where you're in pain. Like my understanding yes. of most painkillers is that they just work on your brain. They're, your brain is the one giving you the signal of I'm in pain, and they just say, yeah, stop mm -hmm. telling the person that. Whereas this is mm -hmm. like stopping the heart from ever telling the brain that it hurts. I, well, I think it's still targeting the brain. And maybe that, you know, if they're able to bypass the proteins binding to the heart and only work in the brain, that might be a path for the actual painkiller. Because, I, you know, they don't want to make something that can stop your heart or something that can fully paralyze you. Because, you know, medicine is medicine. Too much of it, it becomes sure. a poison. So we're looking at a poison and seeing how we can kind of tweak and toggle to make sure that it is a targeted medicine as opposed to like a comprehensive poison. That's right. Dial it back just a little bit. <laughs> That's right. Just no need to go full throttle on this kind of thing. Well, and it makes it makes sense that this is in Australia as well, because they got a glut of spiders over there. They had. Uh, oh, man. Uh, I saw a fascinating thing that was talking about. There's a kid's show called Peppa Pig. And oh, yeah. So one some random episode of Peppa Pig was talking about, oh, bugs are our friends and spiders are nice and you don't have to be afraid of spiders. And they had to not show that episode in Australia. Because people were like, no, spiders are dangerous. Do not tell kids <laughs> that they can just go play with the nearest spider because it will kill them. Right. Like right. Because they're thinking a spider is like a common yeah, little, a little house, house spider, spider that eats delightful little mosquitoes. Right. Whereas Australia, they have Chinese bird eating right. spiders. <laughs> exactly. Unacceptable. Exactly. Mm -mm. So that uh, that message got nixed in Australia. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's localization for different content needs. That's it's, right. It's very common practice in the world. But, you know, if, if they can. <laughs> If they can make good use of the abundance of predators they got over there, I have more power to them. Yeah, use them for good. I mean, yeah, I've seen pictures from Australian redditors of like, here's the little thing I found behind my clock oh. and I'll never sleep again. Yeah. And mm -mm, uh, not for me. No. Not for me. I, we, <laughs> even in Texas, we sort of have a reputation for having like bigger, nastier bugs and stuff than a lot of the rest of North America. But even then, uh, we're nothing compared to Australia. That stuff scares me. They, they can have it. They are welcome to That's it right. and they can keep it there. That's right. <laughs> There's a reason it's an island. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next link. So this one is real quick. It's from Quanta Magazine. It's basically a profile of a really fantastic kind of unsung hero of the computer programming world. Uh, it's Ooh. called The Computer Scientist Who Can't Stop Telling Stories. And Aww. it's just really, it was a really heartwarming kind of piece. I don't know anything about computer programming, but this guy seems like the kind of dude you would want to learn it from if you had to learn it. His name Aww. is Donald Knuth, K-N-U-T-H. 
And he is responsible for The Art of Computer Programming, which is a series of books. Volume 1 was printed in 1968. It's currently in its 42nd printing. Volume 2 was 1969. Volume 3 was 1973. And then since then, he's been working on Volume 4, but he's been releasing it in parts. Right now, he's working on Part B of Volume 4, and he anticipates it will have Parts A through F. But also, he's in his 90s, so he fully admits, like, I may not get there. I'm just going to keep working and keep releasing what I can. But he's just a really fascinating guy. At age 13, he won a contest. Ziggler's Candy Company had a—their main flagship product was this chocolate Ziggler's Giant Bar. And they held a contest. (laughs) They said, how many words can be made from the letters of Ziggler's Giant Bar? And so this kid, as as a child, Donald Knuth, went through the entire dictionary— And it was sort of a learning experience for him because he figured out these sort of algorithm-like processes along the way. Like he could skip whole sections of words. Certainly anything beginning with C was out because there was nothing, there was no C in there. He could skip the whole Mm. section of words beginning with B-U because there's no U. So -hmm. he was able to sort of narrow down his process and speed up the way that he was going through the dictionary. Ultimately, he submitted 4,700 words where the, the contest organizers had only identified 2,000. They were like, no one will get this many. But <sighs> he more than doubled it. And he obviously won the contest. He got to go on TV. He got like a lifetime supply of chocolate for him and all of his classmates, uh, which, you know, maybe helped him. <laughs> it's like a modern Wonka story. Yeah, yeah, My God. exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, when he went on and in high school, he published a newsletter with friends. And always they were these very scientific mathematic topics, but he was always incorporating literature and narrative and this sort of emotional content into what he was doing. So like he wrote a story called The Chemical Caper, except every word was a legitimate chemical formula. Like the word the was TH5E4. And, you know, chemical was CH3EMIC2AL2. Like it was, you know, he... he... Wait, almost like leet speak, but using chemistry formula? Right, and using legitimate chemistry formulas. Like TH5E4 is a possible chemical formula in the world. Like, you can't necessarily just connect any two items on the periodic table. They have to make sense. Oh, my god. And so gosh. he wrote a whole story out of nothing but legitimate chemical formulas making up the words. <laughs> so he's, I mean, he's just a very, he's got this mathematic, very rigid, very computer-oriented mind, but also, you know, he's kind of mm-hmm. brilliant in a entertaining, philosophical, story-like kind of way. And that sort of... That's a very rare balance to strike. It is. And that's sort of what has made his programming books so unique is that he uses narrative. He'll come in and explain Mm -hmm. the history of the algorithm and why, you know, when he's giving you a a problem, he'll actually set up the problem of like, oh, this is why this person needs this problem solved because their aunt needs medicine or something. You know, he would put it in these personal terms that really resonated with people. And he pioneered the philosophy of what he calls literate programming. And that's sort of this idea of, you know, you have to put a lot of narrative comments in your code so that anyone else coming through can sort of follow Mm -hmm. your train of thought, which people didn't do back then. They just sort of spewed the code out. And anyone looking at someone else's code was just like, oh, I can't follow this. It's crap. Well, you know, know, I'm not a software engineer, but I understand that that's a common problem for people who are exiting and entering new jobs Mm -hmm. and have, you know, somebody else's code to go through and debug and clean out because the context is lost or the methodology or thought process behind how these things were done and why they were being done. All of that tends to get left out of documentation. Right. I'm a huge fan of this guy. I mean, oh, I know. Tying things together in a multidisciplinary way for me helps fuse more neurons in unique ways for me to like to really grok something right. to use kind of a tech nerd right. word. <laughs> well, it's amazing. And he believes in open source stuff too. He's all about the sharing, he's all about the human connection. Mm-hmm. He wrote a whole program called Tech, 
T-E-X, which is still used today. That is, it's basically a way of laying out scientific and mathematical symbology. So like when he was printing these textbooks and he's trying to mm-hmm. lay out these mathematical formulas, your basic Times New Roman just wasn't, it didn't look right. It, it couldn't mm. lay out the formulas nicely. And so he just like, well, I'm going to have to write a language that can do that. And it's still used today. It's like everybody's like, oh, no, tech is what we make our math textbooks in. That's amazing. And he's, you know, what I mean, dude. and in case you just like want to love him even more, he believes in starting the day with the task he hates most because he thinks uh, that eating that frog. Yeah, he's like, you get it out of the way and then you have a good life. He said, it would be very easy for me to say, oh, let me be a genius and never clean the toilet. But even cleaning toilets is doable. My wife, Jill, and I got uniforms that have a slot where the 409 cleaner fits. You go over there and squirt and you feel good cleaning the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> What an upbeat, yeah. sunshiny tech guy. Yeah, he's all about finding the little bits of fun and stuff. He's just a really cool, uplifting kind of guy. And uh, he had he had one final quote that was, you know, really just heartwarming. He said, a person's success in life is determined by having a high minimum, not a high maximum. If you can do something really well, but there are other things at which you're failing, the latter will hold you back. And so I try to learn Ooh. how to get through things that others find unpleasant. So he's basically, it's <gasps> like the cleaning the toilet thing. He's like, if you can't, Bring yourself to clean a toilet well, your life is going to not be successful. (laughs) I love it. I mean, like, it's not only humility, but pragmatism Mm -hmm. fused into it as well. That's so lovely. I feel better just hearing about him. He's a nice guy. We hope he lives a long life so he can finish his parts A through F of volume four. (laughs) It's pretty fascinating. Like, he's writing a volume four, but volume one is still very much... In circulation. I mean, 42 printings is insane. What, That's incredible. What other books from 1968 are we still reading? Like, oh, no, this is the definitive thing, especially with something like computer programming, where so much right. has changed. That changes so rapidly. And yet, yeah. because it really hasn't, when you're looking at it from this sort of narrative, emotional human context, right, it applies to the Ugh. stuff we're doing today just as much as it did back then. So I have a new hero. So cool. His name's Donald Knuth. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, I feel like he and Weird Al need to hang out. You've done some great profiles over the past couple of recordings. That's right. Well, I'm I'm looking for the helpers, like uh, like Mr. Rogers You're said. You're looking for the helpers. <laughs> That's absolutely right. I think that is a good perspective to have these days. I think so too. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. There are, of course, many articles we didn't get to. Britain has 139 tons of plutonium. That's a real problem. Quick question: How many galaxies are there? And the lawyer whose clients didn't exist. So if you want to read those, you can go to daminteresting.com. They're in the curated links section. Of course, we will be back next week talking about more curated links if you don't have time to read them all yourself. We have had some new listeners join us recently. So just in case you're wondering what's this podcast about, something you may notice that's a little different about our podcast is we don't have advertisements. Damn Interesting always has been and always will be an ad-free experience because we hate them as much as you do. That also means that we are listener and reader supported. So if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a comment and tell us what your favorite articles were or just, you know, tell us that you like us. (laughs) In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.